Hey guys. Welcome to Required Reading. Uh, this episode we are talking Flannery O'Connor's Wise Blood with a colleague of mine, uh, Bessie Holcomb, who teaches in theology and uh, has published a paper, uh, spoken at a conference, all the good things about Flannery O'Connor, uh, and specifically Wise Blood. Uh, this is a comedy, it's light, and again, some of you like to read along with us, I'm being told, so this one's another good one to do, because it's A, incredibly short. I think you could uh, pop it out in a good, you know, casual Saturday, Sunday afternoon. Uh, I bet you if you listen to the audiobook, it's less than five hours long. It's, it's that kind of a thing. Uh, but it's funny, it's quick, uh, we have a great discussion on it. We have to hurry up again at the end, because the bell rings. Uh, we're teachers, after all. The other thing I will comment on just briefly is uh, we ran out of time, so we didn't do our normal wrap-up, but I will give you my book recommendation. I mentioned it during the episode, but I just read Christopher Moore's Lamb, which is a, well, I mean, the the subtitle is The Gospel According to Jesus' Childhood Friend Biff. Uh, Just understand that Biff is a funny character, but the way they represent uh, Christianity is, in many ways, very respectful. Um... So, I think it's funny. I really do. I laugh out loud funny at points, even. Uh, but just understand, uh, I don't think it's a, like anti-Christian or anything. Uh, I think it's, in fact, very respectful of Christianity. Uh, thanks for listening, subscribing, reviewing, sharing, all those things that allow other people to find our podcast, because we are growing, and uh, it's all because of you guys. So, thanks. Uh, welcome to Required Reading. <laughs> uh, this episode, we're talking about Wise Blood. I've just, I can't keep saying this week. We don't come out weekly. <laughs> this week, we're talking about Flannery O'Connor's Wise Blood. Um, I'm your host, Nick Hoffman, along with my coworker. Hello, Mike Burns here. <laughs> my colleague. My co-host is what I meant to say, but you know, we're here. <laughs> and on panel, we have... Uh, Betsy Holcomb. Nice to be here. Yeah, so... Great to have you, Betsy. Yeah. Uh, tell us who you are. Yeah, so um, I teach theology uh, here at Marist. It's my second year. Um, before I came to Marist, I was at a school called Mount DeSales Academy, also a Catholic uh, high school in Macon, Georgia. Uh, and um, so I've always loved uh, kind of this, I've had this fashion, fascination with O'Connor being in Georgia, but especially for the time that I was in middle Georgia. We were so close to Andalusia, um, and so I'm just really fired up to talk about her today and um especially wise blood is such an interesting place to start absolutely i don't know this betsy about you and i'm sorry but were you from georgia did you grow oh, up in macon great or? question so i was born in new york okay but uh that's sort of to my husband's chagrin um but i only lived there for a year and okay. so i grew up outside atlanta okay yeah. all right well, very good um so obviously flannery o'connor uh, is one of the more i guess southern gothic Kind of yeah, think so. um, authors in Georgia. I came across her in grad school. I'm, Mike is also, we, we assign one of her short stories, sometimes we two do. of her short we stories. either good country people or good man is hard to find. Sort of alternate between those two. And um, yes, she's one of our more Georgia writers. Um, so what, I mean, you said Wiseblood's a good place to start. There's a lot of religion <laughs> here. What what brought us to Wiseblood? Because we throw out the net and see who wants to talk about what, and you came back with Wiseblood right yeah. away. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm also really excited to be in a room with a historian and an English, uh, English teacher. Um, and so I think that uh, it's so fascinating to have our different perspectives on the novel. Um, 
Wisewood's such an interesting place to start in my mind because it's her first novel and because mm-hmm. she only has the two. So we've only got Wise Blood and we've only got um, her second one. Um, oh gosh, now I really shouldn't have brought up the second one because I won't remember the title. Pause while we Google. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's the a, internet's down. It's a, The Violent Bear It Away. It's her second novel. Um, and so uh, it's an interesting place to start because I think, you know, if you read her letters, The Habit of Being, so much of the early letters are just about her writing and rewriting and rewriting and revising in order to bring out something that frankly, not a lot of people she associated with were going to like. Um, it's a novel that is challenging to read. You know, the, the place I wanted, I was thinking I wanted to at least at some point in the podcast mention is like, why would someone read this book, right? There's a gajillion other books to read out there. Why would you read uh, Wise Blood? Um, and I think, you know, her style is, as you said, Southern Gothic and so sort of odd um, <laughs> in so many different ways. But I think for me, listening to her short stories and her novel really helps. So I, I, I find the novel and her short stories laugh out loud funny when mm-hmm. I listen to them. Um, I think she does such a beautiful job of capturing the South. So if you've ever been curious or if you're from the South or if you've ever been curious about what the South is like, I think she really captures a Southern context that not other Southern writers capture. Sure. So you've got, um, you know, Gone with the Wind. And of course, you know, people wanted her to be writing this Gone with the Wind novel. And that is not what we get. No. <laughs> <in Wise Blood. laughs> no. Uh, and so I think you've got to have a good sense of humor. You've got to be kind of curious about the South. And then I think in order to at all appreciate or be curious about what she's doing, I think you've got to want to read something with some depth. So um, to try to figure out who these freaks are that she writes about, who these grotesque characters are and their physical grotesqueness, but also um, their, their, all of their flaws. um, There's some deeper meaning there that I'm I'm excited to explore today. um, And that keeps me coming back to her writings. um, I think they're very parabolic, Mm -hmm. very much like parables, right? There's not this sort of one-to-one, uh, meaning like in an allegory, you know, this is not an Aslan dying and rising and coming back. Sure. Um, this is the, gosh, what does this symbol mean? Um, to the point that some people I think can overanalyze them. You know, she's, she'd been quoted many places as getting questions like, what does the black hat mean? Or what is, you know, why, why this color? And she's like, it needed to be black because it, that's the color it was. Right. right. So it's, yeah, right. it's not a puzzle to be solved, but a mystery to explore. Um, in fact, I, I listened to it one time through and then, uh, really wanted to return to it again. So I started, and it's so short. That was one of the things we talked about, right? That, yeah. um, that it's so short that you really can devour it in kind of a, an afternoon, maybe. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, a couple days. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, I think it's just a, a fast, it, being some of her early work and then being so short, um, and, and all the symbols, I think, uh, really, and, and being a parable, I think is, causes me to keep wanting to read it more and more. So that's one of the things that the podcast is about is sort of a work that we encountered some point early and then revisiting and, and thinking about. So when did you first, and I, I feel the same way about O'Connor's, um, her words, her puzzles, just kind of, to use Whitman's words, itch at my ears, just kind of make me wonder. And sure. I think I get it, it, it yeah. eludes me and then makes me want to come back and, and revisit it. But yeah. when were you, both of you, your first experience reading O'Connor? Um, I don't know if we were assigned any back when I was in high school. Okay. Um, I mean, it's possible. I, I, I took a creative writing course in college and, you know, we would kind of pair up styles. That was probably the first place I remember really getting into a short story of hers. Uh, and then I took a history of Georgia class and we devoted a day to, uh, her essentially. Okay. Uh, we read a bunch of short stories. Uh, and then we paired it against, I think Alice Walker. 
um, and just talk, you know, and then Glenn Eskew, um, the professor who may or may not actually listen to this. Hello, uh, I'm hoping I, I, I've invited him to come on the show because he writes a, writes a really good book about uh, Martin Luther King in Birmingham uh, called But for Birmingham, which is great. Um, but he took us on a tour of middle Georgia where we drive through Madison. We drive, th- we see Andalusia, we see Alice Walker's like home church and stuff. And, um, and then we have fried chicken. Uh, then we head back home. So I, I've been you there. Have to eat. You gotta eat. You gotta eat. Yeah. Uh, you gotta eat something f- deep fried and shortening. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I, it's cool to read the, read the thing and then go to the place, you know, and then see the guidestones or whatever out right. in the middle of uh, the Georgia countryside. Right. How about you, Betsy? Yeah, I uh, I probably read A Good Man is Hard to Find in high school, yeah. and it didn't, you know, I mean, it was just another one of those required things that, you know, didn't really grab me. Um, I really started to get into her short stories when I was living in Minnesota. So <laughs> it's funny, you know, I talk about growing up in Atlanta, and then I went to North Carolina for undergrad and then went away um, to Minnesota for graduate school at St. John's University, and I, I felt so out of place there. Um, and I didn't grow up in middle Georgia, you know, Metro Atlanta isn't quite the same South no, as middle Atlanta, Georgia. And then there's the South. <laughs> right. Sure. Very different things. Right. Correct, um, yeah. but I think, I think being in, in, uh, in Minnesota and, and feeling so out of place, um, reading her stories was like a reminder of, you know, what the South is like and, um, and they're just funny. So it was a great yeah. break from reading kind of deep theological texts. Um, and just to kind of savor these hilarious moments that we find her characters in and the awesome descriptions of her characters. I mean, mm-hmm. they are, they are so, it's funny because it's, it's like a surprising description I find a lot of times, but then also it's like, no, no, that's exactly the way, like she's such a, she has such a, a keen eye mm-hmm. and, and such a, a keen way of describing them. So I fell in love with, with her when I was in Minnesota and then um, getting a chance to be in, in middle Georgia for such a long time and, and getting to go see the place as you, as you talked about. So going and seeing not only um, the farm where she spent the last portion of her life um, and you can see the stories in Andalusia, um, the, the birds that are, that are there on the farm, <laughs> um, the, the different, you know, it's, a, it's a, it was at one point an active farm. And so um, you can, she, she, so many of her descriptions in her stories, I think, came from her sense of place. Um, oh, and... no, I got threatened by a peacock. You oh, know? did you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're aggressive, yeah. They can be aggressive, They're still yeah. floating around there, Which too. Which is so fascinating, right? Yeah. The beautiful bird. I think there's something there, too, about yeah. her, her love for, for peacocks in, in, specifically. Because sure. they're this beautiful bird, this kind of almost like, you know, when it reveals its tail, it could be this, like, you know. A lowercase s sacramental moment, yeah. but they they can they're they're birds right they're they're, they're territorial and can be terrifying and there's something there too that I love that that kind of helps us unpack or explore her stories. I'm curious too because your master's is in theology I assume right so I mean you said reading O'Connor was a break from the deep theological text but I find her I mean she writes about her writing being sort of an extension of her faith and very Catholic yeah. which is unusual in the South. Um, in her time period in particular. So do you, is that part of the appeal to you, or this is a break from that? Because I have many questions for you related to yeah, the theological no, issues. Absolutely. Here. I find it to be a break in the sense of, you know, she's writing, she prioritizes art, right? So she's very influenced by Jacques Maritain, um, who's a contemporary of hers at the time. Um, and he says, he's a, a, a Thomist, and he says, um, when you're making art, and needs to be, you need to prioritize the art, or sacred art, you prioritize the beauty of the art over the sacred. So right. 
um, I think it was a break in terms of, um, you know, not reading kind of a dense, you know, argumentative essay of some kind or a dense theological text. But yes, absolutely. It was this, a not, it, was, it wasn't a break. It was a, an exploration of, of, of what I love about theology. And really, I think art, when it's made well, as, as her stories are, have this beautiful way of grabbing us and pulling us outside ourselves um, that maybe theological texts don't always do. Um, and so I just think it's really, uh, you know, like poetry, for example, right? It makes us feel something. It, you can't, you can write a, a thes- master's thesis on an, a poem, but you can't quite capture the beauty of the poem as you, you know, right. in in those lengthy texts. Right. Sure. And I was going to give you an extension on it's also a nice break from other Southern literature as well. Uh, I mean, because we read, um, we were talking to Kill Mockingbird um, and whether or not it's going to be an episode, which is, I mean, fantastic. It's one of the greatest novels of all time. But the levity there is so specific and it's otherwise a fairly bleak book. You're looking at, you know, people who are going to die. Um, and he's the the savior, the one man who can save them. And he gets close, but doesn't quite get there. And it's so bleak. And then you've got like the Mark Twain side, where these are just colorful people that exist in this world. And she kind of toes that line because she has a lot to say about who these people are, especially uh, Hazel Mount's main character. Um, but almost no other way, no nowhere else does Southern literature like this really exist. Um, and Southern Gothic is such a specific, you know, you just picture the outsider coming to town and the sheriff looking him over and there's not really that. He wants it to be that. It's as though Hazel Moses is in a film noir and no one else is. Absolutely. It's such an interesting, <laughs> like he wants, he wants this to be some like, I mean, and we'll get into his character, but you're right. The black hat. What's the metaphor of the black hat? Well, he, but again, like if he had an office with his feet up on the desk it, and someone came to, to see him, it wouldn't be any different of a book. That's his character. Absolutely. He is this grim character in a very vibrant Technicolor world, and it's fantastic. My favorite example that comes to mind about that is after he sees the prostitute. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's got this black hat on and then he has to get a new hat. Do you remember what? It's this throwaway line. It's almost, I didn't even see it the first couple of times I, I read the book, but um, it's because she carves out like a lewd image in the hat. <laughs> yeah. So he's got to get rid of it, right? So he's taking himself so seriously and he can't can't escape the, the hilarity of, of this all these scenes and people around him. Yeah, I mean, in, in film terms, to me, it almost seems like it could be like a Coen Brothers movie, like mm-hmm. one regular human being <laughs> in a world that is not, it, it's absurd, um, but yeah, it is. Yeah, the Coen Brothers would be perfect. Yeah. yeah. Have you guys seen the film for Wise, or Wise Blood? It's been years. Okay, I haven't. No. It's it's good. It was filmed in Macon, um, right. so there are scenes that uh, that we've I've watched and kind of, you know, oh, there's that, you know, place we know of, but um, yeah, I, it, it's, it's, I find her... Writings to be hard to translate to film because they they are so dark and mm-hmm. grotesque. Um, you have to really kind of want it, right, to, yeah. to really appreciate the the darkness of it. But, but I think Coen Brothers is a great a great connection. And you know, to mention other Southern authors, you know, someone like Walker Percy, who's also you know his faith really influenced his writing. Mm-hmm. You know, you and and they were in, they were talking to each other, which is super uh, interesting to to know that they're writing Catholic fiction at the same time, but yeah. also depicting a very different. Uh, Image of the South. Right. Um, I mean, and uh, I mean, to contextualize myself, when I was in grad school, I was teaching in Carrollton, Carrollton, Georgia, with the small downtown. And yeah. and again, like you see the people coming out of church in their Sunday finest, mm-hmm. and you know, there's the you know the the sports bar downtown where we go sometimes as a you know department after. 
And you just, you can, again, a Baptist will recognize anyone on the street, but never in the liquor store, right? You know, they're kind of averting their exactly. eyes. and Billboards that say Jesus saves, right? right. And, and as you, as yeah, you drive down I-20. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so it, it, it does have that kind of, that, that feel. Like, I get that disconnect and... I mean, and this book couldn't be more Catholic guilty if it tried. Like, there's yeah. guilt everywhere. Yeah. Um, so we should get into it. Uh, who's Hazel Motes? Hazel Motes, a very conflicted character. I really love that so many of the descriptions of Hazel uh, in his movement are very, um, there's like a, almost like a, a rubber band that's that's uh, pulled taut. There's this um, sort of... Uh, tension all the time with him that propels him forward yeah um there's that really great scene kind of a weird scene actually where they see the woman by the pool and uh and it's he's described as like sitting by the pool hazel mode sitting by the pool as if a hand was holding him there so that you know if it were moved away he would he would you know move forward and and quickly and so i just yeah super fascinating character very angry at first when he is on the train right uh with both of the characters he meets there but he evolves so much over the course of the novel, almost to the point that, again, when I re- went back to the beginning after reading it all the way through and seeing the end, going back to the beginning was like, oh, yeah, this person was, I mean, very different. Yeah, totally. Uh, lots, of, lots of evolving happening in the, in the story. What do you make of his name? Hazel Motes. Hazel Motes. Because I know from her short story, she can be very deliberate about her names and her sort of sly sense of humor. Yeah. What do you guys think of yeah. her name? I don't know. I... First of all, it's a perfect name. I, it's a perfect I, name. I can't argue with it. I, I don't know if I have an idea. Like, I mean, obviously, a mode is supposed to be something that's guarded, and he has definitely guarded himself from pretty much everyone else. Well, I think of mode as like a speck of dust. Ah. And then Hazel, she refers to him as Haze a lot through. So there's some sort of Murkiness. lack of clarity. Yeah. Oh, I like that. So that's sort of was my take. Let's see what do you think. Absolutely. I think yeah. On one level, hilarious, right? We've Hazel Motes is a car- is a person who has lived in Middle Georgia, right? Yeah. But I but I think and I, I love kind of thinking about some of these uh, connections, but that also it could mean both of what you said and 18 other things. I think she's uh, brilliant in picking, uh, describing things and also naming people in ways that sticks with you, um, but also that has all this depth of meaning. Yeah, totally. Um, so we smash cut. He's on a train. Yeah. And he's a World War II vet, right? Yep. Uh, and be- grew okay. up, uh, dad, grandfather was a, a preacher. Mm-hmm. Kind of a, a sad life. There's some really fascinating imagery in the beginning about coffins. Remember, he's yeah. on the bus. Or on the train sleeping, uh, and and very anxious in that small kind of sleeper car area, and uh, and and he's lost both of his siblings. Right. Um. Uh. So I think I think already starting not only with uh, the kind of this context of the war, uh, and coming back from it, but also the, his family mm-hmm. uh, creates this uh, tension in him uh, that's always always kind of under the surface. It's also interesting because obviously he's mentally damaged we have like kind of a ptsd but not really ptsd um we have physical wounds that aren't quite healed and he's on this train with normal people and doesn't know how to relate to him but then they flash back to his war days and he didn't know how to relate to anyone there either mm-hmm. right he 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 has this kind of it's interesting that he is in some ways trying to reject his religion we'll get there mm-hmm. but everyone immediately looks at him and thinks he's a preacher mm-hmm. the only thing he carries with him is the bible and then when he's on the train, the glasses. And the glasses, yeah, and his glasses, and right? Glasses, yeah. Um, and Again, then the all... eye imagery and vision, yeah, it's really important. It's right out of Gatsby. Um, oh, interesting. And then once we get there, 
everything it's just so funny how everyone slows him down like yes. the, the the first scene i re- really remember specifically is him trying to get dinner and there's too many people in the car yeah. he has to wait he's frustrated he has to wait <laughs> then the waiter's not paying attention to him and he's judging everyone who's sitting around yeah. him and then that woman comes back again like it's right. just driving him crazy driving and him one nuts. of the one of the things that i love about o'connor's <laughs> stories is that they're the characters are so brilliantly written to annoy each other so, right so in um, yeah, I mean, any other short stories, I'm thinking of Revelation, where you've got the, the hilarity ensues when you have characters that are written to just drive each other crazy. And yeah. so many of these interactions he has, especially at first on the train and, and as it goes on. I think my favorite, and I, I don't mean to jump ahead too much, but no, when he finally meets Enoch, yeah. is this, so Enoch Emery, this character who's, and what's the name of the town they're in? It's this brilliant name. Oh, it um, begins with a T. Yeah. It's Talkingham. Talkingham, which Talkenham. is, again, perfect. Yeah. Uh, so they're in Talkingham, and he meets Enoch Emery. Uh, and, and Enoch is, is you know, the, the story is, um, it's very difficult. If we're thinking of it as a puzzle to be solved, it seems impossible, at least from, from my perspective. Yeah. Because Enoch and, and Hazel are... Um, Enoch's a way to kind of lighten the mood or, or add some some levity, some humor. Um, but Hazel and Enoch, I think, have quite a bit in common. Um, and and to see kind of their interactions together, but also how he, how Enoch slows them down. <laughs> right there's that where he find, Hazel's trying to get back to. Uh, so he's in this town. He has an interaction with a man named Asa Hawks, who's a preacher, and mm-hmm. his daughter Sabbath Hawks. Uh, and then um, they they end up uh, you know separating. Um, but then he's trying to get back to Asa and Sabbath, right. but Enoch is like continuing to keep him. It's like, it's like a nightmare, right? Where you're like, all right, I just have to get on stage because I'm in a performance. At least that's my stress dream. I'm in a, I'm in a play. I've never been to rehearsal. I got to right. get there. I can't get there. Right. So, but I, I think that's very vivid as well. It's also funny to me. I mean, and we'll get to the end books we're reading, but I read Chris Moore's uh, book, Lamb, which is like a, a version yeah, of the Jesus book, yeah. story, which right, is great. Yeah. But it just made me feel like his first disciple is someone he never would want to be around. Yeah. <laughs> it's right. this Enoch Emery is this guy. And again, Enoch, you couldn't get more biblical of a name, yeah. but it's also a book name of an apocryphal text. So he's a guy mm-hmm. who's named after a book that we're not supposed to read mm-hmm. and following a guy who's saying there's a book that's not about God. <laughs> and, and he, the one person he doesn't want to be around, yeah. it's, it's, it's so Flannery O'Connor. It's it so wonderful. And what happens to Enoch at the end? I, I don't want to get no way, or we'll get there. But we'll I'm, get yeah. there. But I have a lot of questions about yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's suit and it is yes. one of the more vivid scenes, right? So, uh, yeah, let's make sure we can try Trading to tra- tra- trace us there. Um, but but yeah, we we see Hazel Motes um, finding a room in the same. Uh, house as um, as Asa and his daughter, right? Uh, and he's fascinated by Asa, this preacher, Asa is blind, is blind, so sunglasses, uh, right. yeah, with it, you know, begging for money. Uh, and then Sabbath, um, what was your the the relationship with Sabbath is fascinating. Um, remember he gives her at one point. Okay, so he's angry at her because right. she, she's angry at him because he tears up the tract. They're passing out. Asa and Sabbath are passing out tracks, and um, Hayes tears it up, you know, very sort of systematically into little pieces of confetti. And then she gives him a nasty look, and he's kind of haunted by it. 
but then she they're both sort of maybe fascinated with each other at different mm-hmm. times like is there did you feel that too like a kind of push and pull yeah from like both a of magnet them? that pushes against each other but you flip it the other way and then they're drawn <laughs> right to each other yeah. yeah at one point he decides he's going to seduce her despite the father and she has the same plan which again feels very coen brothers or something yeah. like yeah. they're going to trick each other into tricking each other um and we should mention at the time when he's fascinated by this you know blind holy man um and of course, also judging him and everyone else in the town. He's living with a prostitute, effectively. Right. <laughs> and Enoch, the manic zookeeper, is following him around, which we'll get to as well. Uh, Leora Watts, the prostitute, whose name he gets off the bus station wall, I think. In the toilet. Oh, yeah. 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 Friend, friendliest, friendliest bed in town. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So... <laughs> Wild, yeah. And so it's like he he's rebelling in this way, but then finally when he gets to her house, it doesn't feel as climactic as he thinks it's going to be. Nice right? It yes. feels like he he wants it to be. He's in this noir, and he wants it. It he feels like it's gonna there's gonna be some breach, right? Yep. Um, but yeah, but it ends up being a little less. Uh, oh, there's a great line about like his first time, and it's like after after their first time, it's sort of like he washed up on the beach. So it's this great like you know again very anticlimactic moment with with her when he thinks it's going to be this kind of epic uh, yeah. decision that that changes everything. Um, and so yeah, Enoch, you know, kind of having his own little side stories too, working in the park, the cent uh, the center of the park, or the 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 park is the the heart of the city. Uh-huh. Um, he's fascinated with this museum and angered by the animals and creeping on women by the pool. Um, and he went to Bible, Bible college, uh, Bible Academy. His, he went, spent. Well, it's weird. It seems like his family is sick of him and sends him off to this Bible camp where he also annoys everyone else. Um, and he keeps calling it the Academy, which is fine, but we, we don't really understand. By the end, I didn't get a feel that he knew anything, mm-hmm. right? Like, he clearly at one point read most of the Bible. And yet, <laughs> yes. he's got wise blood. Yeah. So, that, you know, those scenes where, I mean, where, uh, you know, eventually Hazel gets so mad at him, he throws a rock at him and hits him in the head, and he's on the ground, and he wakes up, and he sees blood, and it's this blood that, this wise blood that compels him to do certain things. It's never right. quite accurate. He's always seeing things, if we're going to use this vision, or, you know, seeing yeah. an eye and vision, he's always sort of, un- I think he even says that he has bad vision. He's never quite, doesn't see everything clearly, right. but he is, is compelled to move and, and propelled to move forward and do these very strange things. Now, what do y'all make of this, this, item in the museum that he is the obsessed with and mummified, mummified, yeah it's a creature something like it's a creature he used to be really tall but it, it then Shrunk. was shrunken yeah. um and he's just taken by it he's he's compelled to bring hazel to see it inside the museum he feels like it's the savior to his church there hazel's is, church there is another world where <laughs> enoch emery is like I don't know, the son of Sam, right? Like, he's like, this thing is talking to me. It is my God now. It is so, uh-huh. it's so bizarre. And he steals God. Like, he, he, breaks, it. he breaks it out. And remember, he, uh, he he paints his face, right? So that he yeah. won't be seen. And then he he even wears a fake beard that's pinned to his hat. I mean, it's just, it's just unbelievable. But, yeah, he's it, this it's, great. You, if, well, that's a whole other issue because he, he paints himself to look like a black man. Yep. Yeah. We should probably talk about yeah. just the the N-word. And, but that's yeah. Another, but yeah, let's go back to Enoch. And the... 
Uh, yeah, I mean, we will Christ. get to whether or not we want to teach it and whether or not we could teach it. Um, I, the language here at some points is pretty hard. But, yeah, um, Enoch worships this tiny it, – it, like, to me, it screams something that would be in Barnum and Bailey's, you know, or, you know, P.T. Barnum would have totally. collected at one right. point. But this is the Kroger brand. And so, like, it's the one that this town has, this little tent outside of town with all this weird nonsense. Uh, but he's obsessed. He's compelled by this <laughs> mummified thing. He he keeps it right in yes. like a tabernacle in his in his he room. He worships at it almost. And so I think I, I bring it up because I, I have a couple questions about you know theologically O'Connor is Catholic, deeply Catholic, and she's living. You know she, she writes this story first when she's in Iowa. She's at the Iowa, Iowa Writers Workshop right. where she goes for graduate school, and she's starting to write it there. But but so much of her um, I mean, her stories are set in the South and influenced by people she, you know, her whole context growing up in the South. And so um, I think it's really fascinating to think of her as a Catholic in a sea of non-Catholics. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't, I mean, Atlanta, there there are lots of Catholics. Yeah, right. Having lived in middle Georgia, it's very, I mean, even a teaching in a Catholic school, it, yeah. it was, it was, it's a different context. And so uh, I think it's fascinating thinking about where her Catholicism kind of shows up in sort of sneaky ways. I would say this creature is one of the ways I think that seems very Catholic to me in this very strange way. Sure. To kind of almost like a Eucharistic figure, to venerate it, to revere it. Um, like a relic, right? Yeah. A relic, a yeah. relic, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and so it, it it's something that Enoch Emery feels like completes him. It feels like it it's something that um, gives him meaning uh, that he wants to share with, with Hazel and... Uh, I, I, I just, I'm really curious about kind of the some of the Eucharistic or sacramental imagery that comes out of this very strange object. In but in, in typical O'Connor fashion, what happens to it, right? It gets smashed. Destroyed. Right? It's destroyed. And you just left one, like you think yeah. it's going to be this transformative thing and then it's just, and then, but then, I, then I we think, move on. And I, right. <laughs> I think it's it, but I want to draw this the connection also to the gorilla suit, this hilarious scene yes. where yes. Enoch Emery. I think it's after he's stolen, yeah, stolen yes, the item, right. and then and he's then he's drifting he, around trying to figure out. He, he sees fig- the ad in the paper. Sees that in the paper right. for this gorilla who's going to visit, shake hands with children, right. and out in front of the movie theater. So much happens out in front of the movie theater, yep. <laughs> and so uh, he he sees the gorilla, and then the gorilla shakes his hand, and we hear him say. Go to hell, right, right. I think. <laughs> and so then he's fascinated, he's decided. It's one of the some of the best moments in the in the story or when he we're not really sure what he's gonna do, but then to see him go and take the beat oh the description of him beating it's up awesome. the gorilla guy in the gorilla suit in the back it's of the so of the truck is amazing. Band, right? It's sort of like they could hear some muffled sa- or like it was muffled by the driving sounds. So they didn't really know what was going on in the back of this truck where Enoch beats up this man who's dressed from the gorilla suit, takes his place. And then gets out of the truck, goes to the couple on the bench puts to shake. Puts the suit on, right? Yeah. Puts yeah. the suit on, goes in, a, in the gorilla suit, goes to a couple, and the woman is described as like flailing her arms and like running away, away from the gorilla as he tries to shake their hands. But I, I think there's some some imagery there too that feels right. very Catholic in this very sort of strange way. Enoch Emery can't see clearly, but he wants to be a different person. He thinks he'll be a different person, almost like a could you say like a. A, a priest offering a blessing or a priest off. Yeah. There's something there. I think I don't want to push it too far, but I no, no, I think, I'm curious. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you that. I think oh. there to make sense of that, at least a little bit, um, that Enoch Emery desires to be someone more than he is, but, uh, is 
you know, has to put on a gorilla suit in order to do it and thinks that what he'll bless people or be revered. Maybe it's also that too, right? That he'll be sort of like respected and honored. He'll be the person that he projected into that. Right. I can't wait to shake your hand kind of thing. Yeah. But when he does it, people Uh. run away screaming. (laughs) And he's sort of left there just sitting on the bench. (laughs) That's the image I can't, I mean, she's so cinematic in her, in her writing. I just see this despondent <laughs> gorilla suit guys sitting in the middle of nowhere in the, in the ditch yeah. or on the side of the road. You know, there, there's so much violence in, in O'Connor's fiction. And, sure. And she, she talks about there's so much violence, but none of her characters actually get hurt. Right. And so for me, I think this, it's not a violent moment like we get with, you know, rocks in your shoes or someone being another story like hit over uh, the head with a book. But, but what we do see is the, the whenever violence occurs, there are moments of grace. Yeah. And so, while it is very sad, I think with Enoch Emery sitting on the bench alone, dressed as a gorilla, it's. I think that whenever we see violence in it, all its different forms, I think it's meant to be a moment of transformation or, or of grace, um, or maybe sure. redemption. I know that's a loaded word as we're reading this story, but uh, but but it's. I think. It's so funny to me that and strange that a moment that's so sad could also somehow be infused with hope. But I think, I don't know, I guess I, I read a little bit of like, oh, maybe there's hope. I don't know. Probably no hope. Is there hope for Enoch? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you, you're sort of rooting for him because he's right. such a sort of um, pure in his motivations. Yeah. But he, like you said, he sort of gets everything wrong. He yeah. misreads people wrong. He, he pisses people off and pushes them away. But he's so... Earnest, I yeah. guess uh-huh. is the right word. Mm-hmm. That's what I was going to yeah. use. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, and to wit, he accomplishes all of his goals in a way that even Hazel Moats does it, right? right? Uh, but to he, what point? He's left <laughs> in the side of the road alone. Right. right. In a gorilla and, suit. So. Right. I mean, all the wrong <laughs> dreams or whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's, it's so... The end of Trading Spaces isn't even this. And it also involves a gorilla suit. Mm. And, <laughs> I also just have to think that, like, this is... When was this written? 1952. 50s? Okay. Mm. Can you imagine how bad that gorilla suit must have looked? Right. Oh, right. Right. Like it's got smell. Again. You can smell it. Right. It's like it's in, been in the rain. Right. It's been. And it's, yeah. and it's probably just felt. Right. right. Like it's sure. not like modern like costume. Yeah. It's just, yeah. So you just have this monster man looking like a Sasquatch coming out of the woods and trying to shake people's hands. Right. It must have been horrifying. So I, th- I think that's what's so fascinating to me, or the theme that's hitting me over the head is just mm. this idea of appearance mm. and how things appear and what the viewer projects onto them. So you yeah. see this ridiculous looking man in a gorilla suit. You see Hazel Motes, who is not a preacher, but everyone, because he has the hat, they think he's a preacher. Um, and you see the man that appears to be blind, but he's really not. And so this whole sort of appearance versus reality thing. Yeah. And we'll, we'll and get that, to blindness. How, what is she yeah. saying about faith there? And, and I don't know. That's what I wanted to ask you. Absolutely. How does that connect? Absolutely. And I, you know, again, I, what I love about this is we could talk about it and, and have uh, for hours and still not quite capture all the meaning. But I, I think that's so so uh, interesting to talk about appearance versus uh, reality and faith. Because I think, you know, we talk about, gosh, Hoover, Hoover, the guy he... Okay, so so this is... I, my example will we'll maybe propel us forward in talking about Please. the plot. When... Excuse me. When uh, when he is out, you know, preaching his church without Christ, yeah. and he uh, gets one follower outside of, of Enoch, and 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 he says Hoover. Oh, I'm gonna get the name wrong, but but he says, you know, he Schultz. Hoover Schultz, and he he starts taking money, and 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 Enoch's like, or excuse me, Hazel's like, you don't understand. This isn't it. But but Hoover sort of thinks that 
uh, you can just kind of keep up the appearance. He's of the creature. town con artist, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's such a great example of, of the distance between the appearance and the reality. But for Hazel, there is this reality that he is chasing. Do, you, do we think he knows the reality of faith or is he seeking something just beyond him? Right, I don't know. That's, yeah. that's what I wanted to ask you. That's what I puzzled with. After <laughs> I wish no, I, I mean, had a full answer for you, but I, I well, think... There's O'Connor, right? I, she right. doesn't give you that yeah, complete answer. Yeah. Exactly. She keeps uh, you coming back and wondering. Yeah. I think, to me, the question is about performativity, right? Like, like, and, and again, there, there's a certain Catholic criticism of maybe Protestantism here. Like, there, there is a message, and they're acting at it in a way. And so hmm. he himself is someone who's walking the walk, talking the talk. He's not taking money. And then people... And then everything else around him is almost a performative version of what he's trying to do. Right. Eventually he beats up a guy on the side of the road because of that. And he kills him. And kills him. With his car, right? Yeah. And so this is another sacramental moment that I really, that yeah. I think is really fascinating. He's so angered. But, and we haven't even talked about the car, the Essex. Come on. The Essex is so good and it's so much of a, it's a character in the story. Sure it because is. it becomes his home. It becomes his his vehicle to escape. It becomes maybe even like a metaphor for his soul or something like that. It's There's one this... of the, my favorite lines is nobody with a good car needs to be justified. What, That's that, right. what does that That's mean? A... You get more American than that? Come on. Oh, it's true. It's so good. There's so many layers to it. And, oh, well, speaking of layers, the peeler, right? There's a potato peeler scene. Uh, and this is appearances versus reality, too, um, where they're, you know, outside in the street and, and uh, there's a potato peeler trying to, salesman trying to, you know, uh, for first one, six, six, uh, six, Half pound of potatoes. So the first one to buy a potato peeler. Uh, it's a box with blades. And and it, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and so I, uh, I don't mean to jump around too much, but I, I just wanted to make sure we talked about some of those things. And, I, um, yeah, the car and uh, and and some of these 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 things that function as so many different things, uh, symbol and metaphor. But you know, a peeler to physically peel back something is kind yeah, of what we're getting right. what we're getting there as well. Um, Oh, killing him with the car. Yes. And that's where we were. So uh, t- thinking about how uh, he that, that scene where he kills, it's it's Hoover shows, isn't it? That yeah. he's, he's killing. And he runs over him with his car, which is like, I don't know if you all have seen Righteous Gemstones, but it's yeah. a scene right out of Righteous Gemstones, um, or Righteous Gemstones gave him right out of O'Connor. Uh, and, and so it's this terrible moment. You know, I was listening to it while I was driving and, and gasped. I mean, to, to think that, his life would lead him to a place where he could murder someone with his car. I found that surprising. Uh, and so then we get a confession. Right. We get the town con artist mm-hmm. confessing. And he, he's saying all the things that he's done wrong, that he's, yeah. he's never treated his mom well. He's, he's, he's lied. He's deceived. And, and I don't, I mean, Hayes doesn't handle it well. Hazel Motes is just so full he doesn't of anger. Want it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he doesn't want to hear it. But there's something sacramental there, too. And, you know, O'Connor is so vividly aware of her Catholicism in contrast to the Protestantism that she experiences in the South. And so I think there's some real um, beauty there in thinking about how she can shed light on Catholicism, but in this way that's not overly preachy or um, overly allegorical or it's not Sunday school, right? I mean, one of my favorite things about this novel is that there are uh, um, – first time I visited Andalusia, the owner at the time told me this story about how there were all these first edition copies of the book yeah. hidden in closets in in towns in Milledgeville because, you know, 
Oh, really? Flannery O'Connor's mom was a well-to-do, you know, woman, well-connected in, in society. And so, of course, all these people are buying the novel to support uh, Flannery and oh, her mom. So and then they open it and are horrified. And sure. so they, they take it and hide it in the closet because, yeah. how you know, this is not a novel that we read or celebrate or put out for people to see that we're reading. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think uh, there's something... Yeah, they in kept it. And yet of they kept, kept it, it. Yeah. yes. And yet there's... And as I think there's something in O'Connor, this kind of sick she knew that right oh, there's no way she yeah. right oh, she, she, absolutely she just knew that. delighted in the in the fact that it would it would scandalize so many people that's right um and and you know there's something about maybe feeling so odd and strange as a catholic in the south that i think influences that so well. do you read that death uh, as redemptive and that Confession he confesses to his sins i think so i'm i'm shocked by hazel's response to it right because i want hazel to like see it as that as well but then but I, to me, it felt like this very redemptive moment okay. right before death, almost like a last rites kind of sacrament. And I, again, I don't want to push this sacramental metaphor too far because we can't map the seven sacraments over the novel and, and see it as a perfect puzzle to be solved. But there, did it feel that way to you? Well, I, I just, I mean, the sort of the killing someone on the road, I think of like, you know, echoes of the biblical stories and, mm -hmm. and sort of transformative moments. But then after that, Hazel goes and blinds himself. Yeah. Right. And then that's very King Lear and he wants to wander in the wilderness. And so there's all these sort of layered allusions yeah. to different literary works that, you know, I can't get my head around. Yeah. It, it let me catch up the story just oh, to yeah. Okay, yeah, please. No, it's fine. So, um, so effectively, as it turns out, uh, the blind man is lying uh, about blind being blind. Preacher, yeah. Blind preacher. It's a hawk. Right. So by essentially calling all this out, People start finally sort of kind of listening to Hazel Motes. He's he's not really preaching as much as yelling at people, but still. And but then, then well, we should say he's preaching to believe in nothing. To, yeah, he's but, he's an atheist, yeah. but he 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 starts doing a very specific kind of atheism, um, which he starts calling the Church of Christ without Christ. And no one's scandalized by that, no. right? So we don't hear any responses, right? You you think in this. Christ haunted South. Right? Yes, right. he wants people to say, "How dare you say there's no Christ? How right. dare you say there's no redemption?" And at every turn, it's almost like it's just more preacher noise on the street. Yeah. And he, so it's very anticlimactic again for him. Yeah. Um, Hoover, as I mentioned, starts following him. He renames himself to Ani J. Holy, so he can call it the Holy Church of Christ Without Which is Christ. Almost unholy. Un yeah. Yes. Like in the name there. Yeah. Phonetically. Yeah. <laughs> and then also. And he kills it, right? He's whole... making tons of money. Yeah, he does. Well, he does. And, and to me, this he's is the perform... guitar, right? He was really doing a. He's, he's a youth pastor with a guitar. Yep. But yep. I mean, like to me, this is where it becomes performativity of of religion, right? Because he's taking this idea that someone who we haven't really gotten to it, but he's a flagellate. He's putting rocks in his shoes mm -hmm. to scar up his feet mm -hmm. so he feels pain as he does these things mm -hmm. and Hoover Motes holy now uh, is making money off it piles of money and this is the, the televangelist megachurch kind of thing yeah. as as a southern catholic you look down like again down the street and see the baptist church that's massive and this is I think what she's pointing out maybe um, though catholics don't generally murder people on the way out as an act of vengeance but he purifies the church uh, by literally throwing out the people with the money tables. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so he runs him down on this road. He's wait, even wait, driving... And, and before, I'm sorry, oh, there's such a vivid imagery, too. He makes him take the suit off. He does. So so this man, who's this fake prophet, has been... Dressing like him dre mm -hmm. and driving a similar car, yep. in fact, which yep. it's described as. Yep. Um, and so he makes him take slowly off the suit, and that's finally when he chases him down in the Essex. And he's laying there in this tragic scene. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
and again, you guys, if you haven't seen the movie, you should, but, like, the casting is exactly who you'd picture in your head. Uh, it's Brad Dourif versus uh, Ned Beatty playing Holy. Uh, and you just, yeah, like, he has these big, soft, charismatic eyes, and you can just see the coldness coming over uh, Moats. Uh, he then drives around in the dead guy's car um, before he's pulled over by a cop with unnaturally blue eyes, yeah. which is kind of what catches up the story. Um, he's driving without a license, so the cop says, I guess you don't need this car, and shoves it off shoves the cliff. Shoves it off the cliff. And we see Hazel fall to his knees. Yes, right. And this terrible car that his whole, this whole story, he's trying to get it, just bare, the horn doesn't work. Right. Oh, there's that great scene early on where he's trying to make a quick getaway in the car, but he keeps pressing the gas and he's like flooding it and it goes forward a little bit and then back and forward and back. And so it's this, this, this great vivid imagery that we get that I think represents much more than just the car, just the Essex. So what does it represent? How, what, how do you see that? <laughs> I, I think it, Come on, tell me. That's... I think for him, I think it, it represents who he wants to be, who he aspires to be. It allows him to have freedom. It allows him to um, get out of situations that are um, uh, that he's uncomfortable with. But I don't know. It almost to me felt like like a metaphor for like the body or the soul or you know something. And I don't. I, I'll be honest with you. I'm still struggling with this this statement about redemption not being necessary. What is it? Uh, no one who needs it's like a back it's it's all negative it's all negated so no one it's such a famous line and here i am butchering it no one it needs redemption who has a good car doesn't what is it oh no when you said oh <laughs> nobody with a good car needs to be justified that's right right it's good no i mean i i, I i'm tr- my my metaphor i'm struggling with is who is the cop supposed to be yeah. in some ways it's almost the unnatural blue eyes make me think it's like a divine being just saying, come on, man. And you can see right through you. Yeah, he sees right through him. And so even uh, he has, like, religion that he's fighting against. Because, yeah. like you said, it's like a long line of preachers, and if anyone should understand religion, it's him. And so in some ways his church is religious, and he's just actively being against it. Yes, and um, I think I think the car you know, being the spot where he preaches from yes. in the spirit of his grandfather also is relevant. And maybe, you know, with it being gone, we get such an about face for him after that. Right. Um, we get him, obviously he's stuck in a place. He's st- he doesn't say still, he wanders. He, well, and I don't even know if wander is the right word. What's what felt to me, you know, we're getting that at the very end of the book, we're getting the description from the landlady, I right. think. Right. Yeah. And so um, to see things from her perspective is so brilliant because she sees it as so odd, but it almost feels like he's at peace and he's, he's walking every day. We find out he's walking with rocks in his shoes mm-hmm. and this is all after the car goes away around himself. He yeah. puts the barbed wire on himself and she's horrified by it. Um, but he's at peace. He, how about the money that we finally learn at the end, he's oh. getting checks this whole time from the millet, from the government and he, but he throws away the stuff that's left over. Well, she wants to like she's gonna scam him, and yeah. like, suddenly like oh he's getting all. We'll the get married, and, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> get married. And she's finding his money and yeah, um, the garbage. But then so, she falls in love with him, sort of. Uh, so it's a good question, right? Or at least is like this at least makes sense to me. She's very practical, very you know this is where she, he's living here. We'll get married. It again feels like this. Um, this reminder. Okay, uh, another, a quote that we should talk about of O'Connor's is she says, for the hard of hearing you shout and for the blind you draw large and startling figures. And to me, yeah. this feels like such a great um, holding up a mirror to um, 
sad interpretation of marriage, right? Just to be like, oh, we'll get married. Well, he lives here. He's blind. He's described as sitting on the porch and not responding to anything she says. It doesn't yeah. interact with her, but it seems very practical um, and very, you know, if anything, you know, maybe even a little uh, manipulative in order to get oh, his totally. money, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, initially at least. Yeah. yeah. So I think there's something, something quite sad there too about it. But then uh, ask them to marry him at the well. I don't want to jump it to the very no, end. No, no, I mean, sure, let's we, do it. Let's end this book. Well, yeah, the line is her first plan had been to marry him and then have him committed to the state institution. Yeah. Insane, so she could keep getting his money but yeah. not have to deal with him. Yeah. yeah. Gosh. Well, I mean, and again, this this reminds me of the metaphor of the car. Like, the last time he, he's in the car before it gets destroyed, he just wants to leave town, yeah. and then it breaks down again, right? right like, right, right. And so he can't even get a break, and then it's destroyed. And right. then, ultimately, when he gets blind, he's stuck in town again. Is he? But I... <laughs> There's something about these penitential acts and the, the description of him after the car is gone. I think he's even described as being like a monastic. Oh, that's mm-hmm. right, because she even says living in a monkery or something like a she monkery, gets the yeah. reference wrong, right? And again, how many how many Protestants in the South, in the rural South, are understanding what a, a monastery is right. and what that monastic life is? And so, you know, his life takes Hazelwood's life takes such a an odd penitential but very monastic turn there. Yeah. And so I couldn't help but feel like he was at peace, even though he was suffering and causing himself to suffer. Is that, did y'all get that sense or is it just like he's resigned? He's blind. He can't. Yeah. There is a sort of tranquility to, but I don't know. Yeah. Whether it's a, uh, like a concession or a giving up or, Mm. or yeah, I don't know. It's, it's very enigmatic. Yeah. I don't know. It's so funny because, he seems to hate people constantly, and now he's stuck with someone. Mm. It, I, it's, it's almost divine punishment in some way. Mm. It feels like a very John Donne kind of, like, here's your punishment. Let's live with it. I don't know. I, mm. I'm with you, though. It is – it's funny. I, I can't get away from how funny this is. Even the monkery. Right. It sounds like the, the monkey house. Right. Well, yeah. Listen, yeah. Listen back to Enoch. That's yeah. how I thought that. Enoch. Oh, yeah. Like we're exactly. all sort of – <laughs> blind apes kind of yeah. feeling our yeah. way around. And this, this gets after, I was, yeah, I think, you know, she talks about, so many of her characters are freaks. Yeah. And so you could ask yourself, is she, what what causes her, what motivates her to write about freaks? Does she hate them? Does she, you know, she just, she just loves creating people who are going to suffer. But I get the sense that she sees freaks in her stories because she sees how we're all kind of oh, freakish, yeah, right? Absolutely, right? So there's, there's this, we sort of love these freaks. We love these characters that are so bonkers or so uh, yeah just wild and crazy and, and ugly in so many ways but um there's some real beauty there to it and, and i love that contrast between the beauty and the and the, the freaks that she that she writes so to sort of swing back have you taught this before i've never taught it no i've never taught wise blood i've taught you, would you would i teach you should talk about the you know wise blood. racism in it as well yeah I, to answer those two questions first i think it's a hard from a theological perspective, I think it's a hard novel to teach. Um, I think her theology and her theological vision kind of develops over time. So I like to start kind of at the stories that are, that are at the end of her life with mm-hmm. Revelation and Parker's back. Uh, and so um, I think theologically those to me have so much more uh, vivid imagery in there. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean, to, to circle way back, when she was writing these as short stories uh-huh. in Iowa – and then eventually cobbled this together Wove them together it as a novel. Yeah, okay, absolutely. Right. Yeah, right. and and I think it reads that way too. It feels like, okay, here, episodic, right? Yes. These, these short stories that are woven together. And then to answer your question, or at least to 
respond <laughs> to your question about uh, the racism in the stories. Um, you know, there was some stuff that came out last summer. Or what is it? Was it last summer? Two summers ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, really trying to say, what do we do? What do we do in this moment in history with O'Connor's fiction, the use of the N-word? Which is, um, there's a lot of it in here. a lot. More than mm-hmm. I expected, yeah. It's a lot. And it's, you know, at first when I taught this novel, or when I taught her stories, I would say, well... She has racist words in her stories, and she has racist characters, but she none of them are heroes. And I would sort of kind of push it aside and say, you know, she's she's not anti-racist. I don't, I don't think I had the language of anti-racist, but I think I, I just said, like, well, she's writing her life, and her life is full of racism. Um, but I, I think the way I think about it now in teaching her her writings is that it at least gives us a platform if if we contextualize it properly. So if we set the context and prepare students, because it... It's upsetting to to see the racist imagery right. and to hear the racist characters say the things they say. If we contextualize it properly, if we you know talk about everyone kind of being on board and agreeing that we're using this not only to explore theological themes and other kinds of themes that are important, and also talk about how the story is has racist characters, I think it can be a platform to grow and learn about those things. But I think. The teacher, at least from my perspective, I want I have to be willing to do that extra work before we start, right. and that everyone can grow from the mistakes that are or the racist things that are said in the in her fiction. Um, yeah, what are you all thinking? Would you teach this novel? I, I think it would be good in the proper setting. Um, I think we could do a class like uh, literature, religion in Georgia, um, something like that, and we could pair it with Alice Walker. Like it makes sense that it was paired with Alice Walker, because I think the language is strong, but. One of yeah, the, it hits you right in the face in the beginning with that scene with the porter. I was just like, yeah. oh, man, yep. where are we yeah. going? Yeah, I mean, but it it would, it was done intentionally, but it's also not, at the time, inappropriate, right? It makes him a bad guy, right? It makes the character bad. Because, like, you don't use that kind of racist language if you're you, – you, would you wouldn't use it in that way if you were supposed to be the hero. And yet she's using it on purpose. So I, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of the problem – with the uh, anti-racist stuff in general, uh, which again is a discussion for another day, but this is an important piece of literature, and if we ignore all of that stuff, we don't get any of it. You know what I mean? Uh, there's a reason we don't read Twain anymore, and that's also a problem. I, I think, though, if we did it as a class of religion in Georgia, and we talked about it in that kind of context, I think it's perfectly appropriate, because then you have kids who are signing up specifically with that understanding. Um, because I... I find it funny. Like there's, it's so much Southern Gothic is just not funny and enjoyable in this way. And I, 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 I loved it reading this. So. Yeah, I, I did too. I, yeah. I just, I will say, I think that it would be important, as I said, contextualizing it, making sure that students knew before they started reading that we're not reading this because we support these views, of course but not. that we have right. to kind of wrestle with it and make sense of it. And, and how do we grow from it and, right. and make sure, because frankly, these views and words and things are still, probably existing in Georgia, yeah. middle Georgia, and maybe across the country and in different pockets. And so um, I, I have not opened it yet, but on my bookshelf is uh, a book by Angela O'Donnell uh, called Radical Ambivalence, Race and Flannery O'Connor. Mm. And so it's some recent work that's being done um, really trying to to not just kind of whitewash away the, the racism, mm-hmm. um, but really kind of wrestle with it uh, and reckon with it uh, as a way of just continuing to appreciate the beauty of her yeah, novels if, and the challenge I, of her novels. I agree. If I were to teach it, I would have a book or readings like that or the recent New Yorker articles from yeah. a couple of years ago to give the context of of, of the problem of the racism and, and her use of the 
in word, and, yeah. and these characters are that. And I think it's no also, very clear answer. Yeah, I didn't mean to speak over. No, you. No, I'm sorry, no. but I think it's also appropriate to say now's not the time. So there are stories or there are things that are appropriate. And then I think it's also to find, like to say, this is too delicate. This is too much, too mm-hmm. tense, too, too mm-hmm. much. And to, you know, to, there are other beautiful, you know, mm-hmm. short story authors and, right. and things to, to turn right. to, but to not say she's not canceled. You know, we're not saying she didn't write beautiful fiction, but also to, to kind of couch yeah. it in context. That's, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Well, there's the bell. So, <laughs> there's Betsy, the thanks for joining us. This has been such a delight. Thank you for well, having me. Awesome. No, it was a blast. We need another episode to get to, <laughs> through all this. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Acquired Reading is hosted by Dr. Nick Hoffman and Mike Burns. It is a product of Mare's Podcasting and Do Better Podcasting. The theme song is written and performed by Davis Burns Music. The podcast is engineered and produced by Nick Hoffman. The opinions expressed here are the opinions of the hosts and guests and do not represent Mare's school. Thanks for listening.